All right, we will be in uh, 2 Corinthians today. Um, you're going to need uh, your scriptures more than anything else. Uh, so we're going to be looking at some passages today um, in your book or on the sheets that you have out there, which is kind of a um, shorter version of what is in your book. Uh, we'll kind of be an outline. We won't stick to that really today because what I did, I just kind of picked out uh a, little bit, a few verses from each chapter uh, or so, just to kind of highlight and to point to some of the main issues that Paul is trying to deal with in 2 Corinthians. So just for a, um, just for a short review, last week uh, what we looked at here was kind of the outline of 2 Corinthians. Uh, we saw that the first seven chapters of the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul is defending his apostleship for his he's trying to repair his relationship with the church at Corinth if you remember he had a very difficult relationship with the church at Corinth they were divided they had divisions within the church they were showing favoritism to one leader over another and Paul addresses that in first Corinthians when he's addressing the divisions that they had and people are still attacking his apostleship, but many in the church have repented, and they have seen the error of their way, and Paul speaks of their repentance here in 2 Corinthians. So he wrote 2 Corinthians because many in the church has repented, and he's trying to reassure them of his leadership, that they can have confidence in him, that they know that they can trust him, that they know that he is of God and God is with him and God is working in his life. So he's trying to repair that relationship and uh, giving thanks for them and just going over and above, showing them the proofs of his ministry in the Lord. So he does that through the first seven chapters. And then in chapters 8 and 9, he goes to the issue of the collection. Uh, he speaks of the collection in 1 Corinthians, um, I believe it's around chapter, chapter uh, 10 or so, 12, 13. Uh, but in 1 Corinthians, he speaks of the collection. What they are doing is they're taking up a collection for the believers in Jerusalem. And Paul gives them instructions in 1 Corinthians to, on the first day of the week, to everybody set aside a certain amount that they have purposed in their hearts. And then he would come and receive the collection and take their love offering to the believers in Jerusalem. So they have been collecting, and during Paul's short visit in between 1 and 2 Corinthians, he did not get the collection, it was not ready, so now he's uh, encouraging them to get this collection uh, ready. So he will encourage them in chapters 8 and 9. Then in chapters 10 through 13, we talked last week about there were still opponents of the Apostle Paul and the message of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians, Paul deals with a lot of the paganism that is out in the world and the pagan influence that was taking place in the church. The influence here in 2 Corinthians is not so much, even though he mentions it around chapter 6, the influence against the church is not so much from the pagan world as it is from those pretending to be false apostles and those pretending to have uh, the same type of authority that the Apostle Paul has. 
and Paul is coming against them, and they have uh, quite a Jewish influence. It's probably some of the Judaizers, like we will see in the book of Galatians, that are beginning to start causing trouble. And Paul is calling them out for being false apostles, and he does that in rather harsh words and a harsh tone in chapters 10 through 13. And then at the end of chapter 13, he closes out in some final greetings and instructions. So what we're going to do today is I've picked out uh, some passages from from each of these that we're just going to look at some of the passages of Scripture. So let's begin in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians. Chapter 1 in 2 Corinthians. And as we mentioned last week in our introduction, one of the things Paul is defending is in fact his suffering uh, and his hardships. And many times when people look at someone that's suffering or going through hardships, uh, they'll say, you know, well, you know, if, if they were a real Christian, they wouldn't be going through that. Or if they were good enough, they wouldn't be suffering like this. And the main point that Paul was trying to make is, is that suffering is not an indictment against his ministry. His suffering is actually an approval of his ministry. That his suffering is because of his faithfulness to God. That his suffering is sacrifice in order that others may come to know Christ. Because a lot of times in our religious world today, um, when we have you know, mega churches and Christian celebrities and you, know, you kind of have the big head honcho here and everybody else is kind of under them. Uh, one leader called it Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. That are, you know, you've got the big leader and then the people that are under them. And the big leader is kind of like the star. Well, in Paul's ministry and in true apostolic ministry, that's not how it's supposed to be. It's not like a pyramid scheme where everything leads up to the head person and everybody else is underneath them. Paul is sacrificing and Paul is suffering. It's kind of like being a, a mother or a father when sometimes we have to sacrifice our needs in order to do what's best for our family so that they can have you know, a better life than we have or they could have more advantages than than we had. It's, it's Paul is suffering and he is facing hardships in order that the church could prosper. So many times he goes without so the church can have plenty. And so really it's not top-down leadership, but it's the apostle and the, the person at the bottom that's pushing everybody else up. And it's bottom-up leadership. It's servant leadership. And I believe that's the leadership that Jesus exemplified in his ministry, even as we looked Sunday in our message that Jesus did not come to be served, but he came to serve. And it was Jesus that knelt at the uh, disciples' feet to wash their feet. So Jesus is exemplifying this servant leadership. And Paul does the same thing. So his suffering, his hardships, his trouble, his trials, the people that are against him, is not an indictment against his ministry, but it's really the proof of his ministry. And he even comes to the conclusion that he rejoices in his weaknesses, that he doesn't have to be strong in every situation because in his weaknesses, God is the one who is made strong. And in his trouble, God is the one who delivers him. 
And in his trouble, God is the one who comforts him. So at the end of the day, who gets the glory? God gets the glory instead of Paul getting the glory. And if, if people coming against him and people talking bad about him is the price he has to pay for God to get the glory, then so be it. Because his ministry is for God and for God's people. So in 2 Corinthians, he begins in chapter 1. And I want to begin reading in verse number 3. And we're going to read down uh, and point out some things uh, through verse 11. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse 3, Paul gives a kind of a traditional salutation, but adds some things in here as well. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. And I think that's a great principle to apply in our lives, that we are comforted in our trouble, that we can comfort others with the same comfort that God has given us. He says in verse number 5, For just as though we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so he's connecting his sufferings to Christ's sufferings, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. So our comfort doesn't abound when we're, we're not suffering. Our comfort doesn't abound when everything is great. Our comfort abounds in the midst of our sufferings because our comfort comes from Christ. He says in verse 6, If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. So not only is he talking about God's comfort and sharing in God's sufferings, but now he relates that to the church and that they are sharing in that with Paul and the apostles, and they shall all be comforted together with the Lord. Then in verse number eight, he goes on to say, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced. So he's admitting their troubles that he went through. He says, we were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. He says, we suffered to the place where we couldn't bear it. He says, indeed, we felt, in verse number 9, that we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. I love that. He says, we face death. We felt we have the sentence of death, but we've been sentenced to death. He says, and that makes us not rely on ourselves, but it makes us to rely on God because God raises the dead. So even though we feel like we're suffering troubles that would, you know, it's beyond for us to bear, God will bear us in the midst of of those burdens. And even if we feel like we're facing death, God raises the dead and He gives us victory in the midst of our suffering anyway. For in verse number 10, He says, He has delivered us 
from such a deadly peril. This isn't the first time Paul had suffered. And he will deliver us again. On him, we have set our hopes that he will continue to deliver us. He will continue trusting in God for his help and his deliverance. So he begins this salutation relying on the comfort of God and and establishing the principle here that God is our comfort, God is our consolation, that we are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And when we face great pressure, when we face great hardships that we don't know how we can bear, he says we rely not on ourselves, but we rely on God who is there for us. So that's how he begins this this letter, by assurance, by giving the church assurance that God is with him and those who are laboring with him and that God is with them in all of our troubles. So if we go to chapter 2, in the rest of chapter 1, he talks about uh, how his, the change of his plans and his travel itinerary and things of that nature And we said last week that one of the occasions that Paul had made a quick visit to Corinth. And after this visit, he was very sorrowful. And he wrote a very strong and a very harsh letter. And he talks about that here in chapter 2 as he kind of begins. So let's just kind of get a taste of this. And as we said last week, just notice the personal tone that Paul takes. This letter is not um, like 1 Corinthians which 1 Corinthians was very instructional. It was very practical. This letter is very heartfelt. So I want you to hear Paul's heart come through in this chapter. So chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad? But you whom I have grieved. I wrote as I did so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share in my joy, for I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. And here we get a small glimpse of Paul's heart as a spiritual father. For even though we have no proof of Paul ever being a natural father, fathering a a child, he had many sons and many children in the faith in all of these churches. And and as I mentioned last week, what I love about this passage and what I love about the Scripture and the letters that Paul writes is you really see his heart come through. It's not just a theology book. He's leading with his heart. So he's telling them, he said, I had to make a a visit to you and and I didn't want to come and make another difficult visit. He said, so I had to write to you a very harsh letter, but I wrote that letter with many tears. And I wrote that letter in, in distress and not to grieve you, but so that you would know my heart for you. Then if you skip down to verse number 14... He makes an unusual statement, and it comes through in some, uh, some more modern translations, but I just wanted to point this out because, again, Paul is, is pointing toward his suffering and his trusting in Christ and his weaknesses. He says in verse 14 of chapter 2, But thanks be to God 
if you have maybe a King James that says, who always causes us to triumph, or always leads us in triumph. If you have an NIV or ESV or another, it, it reads this way. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. In, uh, in ancient parades, say a king would come back to battle and they would experience a victory. One of the things that they would do is they would have a triumphal procession through the city. And part of that triumphal procession is that they would have captives that they had taken from the battle. And they would put those captives in the procession and, and those captives were to be a picture to everybody of the victory that the king had won. And while, you know, earlier translations may seem that, you know, we are the, the, the triumph and we are in the parade as look at us, look how great we are. The real connotation is not as that. Christ is the one who is the king. Christ is the one who has triumphed. And we are the ones that he has captured, not in a negative way, but he's captured us for himself to put us on display that we would be on display for the world that we belong to him, that we are his, that we have made ourselves servants of Christ so that he would be known. So he says, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. He says, so we are put on display as we are those who have been captured by Christ. And we are being used in his victory, in his triumphal procession to call those to faith in Jesus Christ. So again, he's defending his apostleship. As we come into chapter 3, he asks a question. So chapter 3, verse 1, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Do we need to prove ourselves to you, Corinthians? You know us. Do, do we need letters of approval? Do we need to get a recommendation and give you a recommendation of who we are? And he says, no, you know who we are. They know who Paul is. He says in verse number 2, that you yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. The Corinthians themselves are the proof of Paul's ministry, that they have come to faith in Christ, and they are proof. So he says in verse number three, you show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. They are the proof of Paul's ministry. And he says in verse number 6 of chapter 3, He has made us competent ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So now he's going to make a contrast. And this is the first clue that... Those who he's dealing with come from a Jewish influence. For he doesn't really talk much. He makes, you know, a couple of comments in 1 Corinthians about the law. 
But he doesn't spend a lot of time on it. But here he draws a stark contrast between what was written on the tables of stone. And we know from the Old Testament what was written on tables of stone. It was the Ten Commandments and it was the law that was written on tables of stone. And he's comparing that to the Corinthians, who is a letter written not on stone, but not with ink or on stone, but written by the Spirit. For Paul says, we are ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, the letter of the law, the stone commandments of the law, but of the Spirit of God. And he says in verse 6, for the letter kills. What does the, the law do? The law condemns us. The law tells us what we've done wrong, and we know that we are sinners by the law. We know that we are condemned and stand guilty because we've been convicted by the law. And it kills. When the law was given, 3,000 people died at the bottom of Mount Sinai. But then the Spirit was given in Acts chapter 2. And the Spirit doesn't lead us to death. The Spirit leads us to life. The Spirit doesn't lead us to condemnation. The Spirit leads us to affirmation. The Spirit doesn't lead us to death. The Spirit of God leads us to life in Jesus Christ. It makes us alive and makes us born again unto God. He says in verse 7, Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, and there's no doubt what that is. You know, I had a lady get years ago, get really mad at me for talking about the Ten Commandments this way or the law this way. And I just said, I'm just reading what Paul says. Don't get mad at me. I'm just reading what the Bible says. And, and she said, well, here's what I think about the Ten Commandments and the law. And I said, with all due respect, it doesn't matter what either of us think. It matters what Paul says. And we have to interpret the Scripture by the Scripture, not interpreting the Scripture what by what uh, we believe. Now, Paul makes it clear that the law was given to the lawbreakers. The law was given to those so that they need to know their guilt. But the gospel, the law can never lead to salvation. Because everybody that tried to keep the law kept breaking the law. And everybody that broke the law was convicted and found guilty. So why the law has a purpose? And Paul said, I'm not against using the law. He says the law has a purpose. But we need to know what that purpose is. The purpose of the law was to bring us to guilt so that Christ could bring us to life, so that the Spirit can make us alive and born again. The letter kills, it brings death, but the Spirit gives life. The Spirit gives life. You know, and I'm not against, you know, posting Ten Commandments or having the Ten Commandments and, and things of that nature. But just know that just posting the Ten Commandments doesn't bring righteousness. The gospel of Jesus Christ brings righteousness. So while we may post Ten Commandments, and I'm all for it, and hey, post away. Anything we could do to get a godly influence in our world, post away. But just know that it's not the Ten Commandments that bring salvation. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God that brings salvation. So while the Ten Commandments may show people their sin and their need for God, maybe we should put beside the Ten Commandments John 3, 16. 
For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And you could add John 17. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. That way you get both sides of the coin. You show people their sin, but then you give them Jesus. But I think sometimes we just think, well, if we just post Ten Commandments, and I love the Ten Commandments, they're a great part of our spiritual heritage. But Paul says they don't lead us to life. The letter kills, it condemns us, it shows us we're guilty. But only Jesus can come in after that to be our Savior. So yeah, I'm all for the Ten Commandments, but I'm also for the Gospel which brings salvation from the condemnation and the sin that the Ten Commandments show. So Paul said, I'm not against the Ten Commandments, I'm not against the commandments, if they're used correctly. And that's how they are used correctly. So he says, if the ministry that brought death engraved in letters on stone came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadfastly or steadily on the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, it was only given until Christ came. He says, if if that ministry that brought death, if it had glory with it because they couldn't look on the face of Moses... He says in verse 8, Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison to the surpassing glory of the Spirit. And if what was transitory came with glory. How much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Talking about the Spirit. He says, therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. He says, we are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull. So in the first 11 verses, or in in verses 7 through 11, he talks about the difference between the Old Covenant written on stones and and the New Covenant by the Spirit. He says the Old Covenant brought death and condemnation. The Spirit brings life and righteousness. He says the Old Covenant was transition in nature. It was only temporary. He says, but the New Covenant will last. It's the final, the ultimate covenant. And he says, if the first one had glory, how much more glory comes when you preach Christ and the Holy Spirit? And then he goes on to talk about this veil. And he begins to talk about that Moses put a veil over his face so that children of Israel could not clearly see. And he says in verse 14, their minds were made dull. For to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. He said if you just read the old covenant or the Old Testament, there's still a veil over people's faces. They see in part. He says, and when the old covenant is read, he says, that veil has not been removed. He says, because only in Christ is the veil taken away and you can see clearly. He says, only in Christ. He says in verse 15, even to this day when Moses is read, and Moses is a word for the law, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 
And we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate or behold the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So he says, so this gives us a clue that it's these Judaizers with this Jewish law-based influence that's coming. And he says, when you just have that old covenant read that brings death and condemnation, you don't find life and find freedom. But only when Christ is revealed, it removes the veil and brings us into life where we are made in the image of Jesus Christ. Where we're made in His image. So that's, that's you know, a lot of, that's a deep theological passage that he, he has there in chapter 3. Um, and he talks about uh, the veiling of the people's eyes and the God of this age veiling the minds of those who believe not, lest the light of the gospel should shine for them in chapter 4. Um, in chapter 4, he picks back up the theme of his suffering in verse number 7 of chapter 4. If you look with me in verse number 7 of chapter 4, he says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay, that's our bodies, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. In verse 8, he says this, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not in despair. We are persecuted, but we are not abandoned. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. That, That encourages me so much every time I read it. That he says, yes, we're going through this, but because of Christ, we are not overcome by it. Yes, we are hard-pressed, but we're not crushed. Yes, we're perplexed, but we're not deep in despair. Yes, we're persecuted, but God hasn't left us. Yes, we're struck down, but we're not destroyed. We're struck down, but we're not going to stay down. Why? Because God's the one who raises the dead, as he mentioned earlier. He says, we always carry in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. And if you look down in verse number 16 of chapter 4, he says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though we're going through all of this, we don't lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, outward, our outward man may perish. Yet inwardly, in our spirits, We are being renewed day by day. So that just tells me that what's happening to you, what's happening to us, is not greater than what God can do in us. And even if we feel perplexed and stressed and feel like we're being crushed and feel like there's a great weight on us, you can still have freedom and peace inside. Because while this world may try to come at you from the outside, the Spirit has power over you. On the inside. He says in verse 18, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. That's the important part. And that part is the one that will carry on forever. And then in chapter 5, he goes on to talk about what that eternal is. And... um, He talks about if we put off the earthly tent, 
You know, we still have a heavenly house in the heavens. And, you know, he talks about uh, that God has us in this life and in the life to, to come and that we will all give an account before God for what we do in this, in this body. And that's why he's pressing on. And that's why he's, you know, still defending his apostleship. He knows he will have to give an account and stand before God of what he did. And he would want to be found faithful. And then later, that's, that's the first part of chapter 5. In the later part of chapter 5, he goes back and appeals to the cross of Christ. And I want to read this as well. He says in verse number 11, again, he's defending his apostleship. He says in verse number 11, Since then we know that it is, or what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. And this is the heart of his ministry. He is trying to share Christ with other people. And here's why he's trying to share Christ with other people. Because of what Jesus has done for them. So if you look in verse number 14 of chapter 5, he says, For Christ's love compels us. For the love of Christ compels us. For everybody. Not just for some, but for all. He's compelled by love, he says, because we are convinced that one died for all. We are convinced Christ died for all. And therefore, all died in Christ. And He died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them and was raised again. So He's saying here, Christ died for all. And all experienced the death in Christ. And we are going to persuade others so that they may live in Christ. And while Christ's death was universal, Christ's death was for everybody. Christ atoned for all the sins of the world. All died in Christ. Just as in Adam, we all spiritually died. And in Christ, that old man died in Christ. His death was for the world. He reconciled the world to himself. But not everybody lives for Christ. So he's saying, because Christ died for all, because all died, I need to go and persuade people of what Christ has done for them, so that they may come to faith in Christ. He says in verse 16, So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. He says from now on we judge no man after the flesh. He says so we don't go around looking at people according to their flesh because Jesus died for them. And we're going to tell people that Christ died for you so that you can live in Christ and be made a new creation. So he's not seeing the people in the world again as enemies. He's seeing people, as I mentioned Sunday, as sheep without a shepherd who are lost, who have been reconciled to God, but they don't know it yet. Who their old man has died and Christ atoned for their sins, but they don't know it yet. And Paul is saying here, so I'm not looking at them in a worldly way, judging them by their flesh. I'm judging them by this. That's somebody that Christ died for. And that's somebody that needs to hear the good news that they are reconciled in Christ so that they can come to faith and live for God and be reconciled to Him. He says, So therefore, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. And all this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us, Paul says, the ministry of reconciliation. 
He didn't give us the ministry of going out and judging everybody. He gave us the ministry of going out and telling everybody that they've been reconciled to God through the death of Christ. That they were a part of the work that Christ did on the cross. And God, Peter, and Paul says God has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. What is that? What does that mean? Well, here's what it means. Verse 19. That God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting people's sins against them. That's what reconciliation means. Reconciliation means that God is not angry at us or counting our sins against us, but our sins have been atoned for in Christ, and God was in Christ reconciling our sins. God has reconciled the world to Himself in Christ. And Paul says we're ministers of reconciliation, going to persuade others of what Christ has done for them. And it says he has committed us to us the message of reconciliation. He says in verse 20, we are therefore Christ ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We were Christ ambassadors, as though God was making his appeal through us. Here's the appeal. Because some people can take passages like this one and, and passages like in Romans 3 and they take the universality of this passage. We know Christ died for all. We know Christ atoned for our sins, but not just our sins, but He atoned for the sins of the whole world. Christ paid for everybody's sins. That's a fact. That is a biblical fact. And some people would take that and they would say, well... Because of that, if Jesus died for everybody and he atoned for everybody's sins, then everybody is right with God and everybody's saved and they come into a form of universal salvation or universalism. And if you take part of these scriptures, you can make it say that. But you have to take the other part. Because yes, on the objective side of God, he did atone for everybody's sins. He did reconcile everybody to himself in Christ Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago. And we are ministers, and we have that word of reconciliation to tell people, God, is, God reconciled you in Christ. He atoned for your sins in Christ. But listen to what Paul says. He says in verse 20, We are Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal to us. So what's the appeal? Christ reconciled you to himself, or God reconciled you to himself in Christ. So here's the appeal. We implore you on Christ's behalf, you, everybody in the world, you, now that God has reconciled you to himself, you be reconciled to God. Because God's accepted you in Christ, you accept Christ into your life. All died in Christ, but not all live in Christ. So he's appealing to people. Now you be reconciled to God by seeing what Jesus has done for you. You be reconciled to God. You receive what he has done for you so that you may experience new life and you may receive the benefits of what Christ has done for you in his atoning death on the cross. Faith plays a part in salvation. Yes, God did it. But we have to receive it and believe it by faith. And when we do that, it's that simple. Salvation is that simple. So he says this in verse 21, God made him who had no sin 
to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I want to show you one more passage and we might have looked at it last time but I want to show it again and that's back in Romans. Look back in Romans. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 says in verse 21. So I want to show you two things. I want to show you the universal aspect of what Christ did for everybody. And I want to show us our responsibility and how it's still our responsibility to respond to the gospel. Verse number 21 of Romans chapter 3. But now apart from the law, righteousness, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. So how does righteousness come? Through faith in Jesus Christ. To all who believe. So there's, there's man's responsibility. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace. So just as all have sinned in Adam, all have been justified in Christ. Freely by His grace. Through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood. So you can take that part of that verse and say, look, all have sinned in Adam and all have been justified freely in Christ through His blood. So if God reconciled us all, if all died in Christ, if Christ is the atonement for all of our sins and all have sinned, but all have been justified, then everybody's good. And I say that because this is becoming more of a prevalent thought in today's Christian world, in a thought of Christian universalism. Not atheistic universalism, but Christian universalism. To say that Christ reconciled us all, you know, in 1 John chapter 2. You know, He did not atone for our sins only before the sins of the whole world. Christ is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. And this emphasized the universal aspect of Christ's work, which I thank God for the universal aspect of Christ's work. And it is true. He did all of these things for everybody. But you can't leave out the parts that put a response on mankind. I mean, just to say that Christ atoned for everybody's sins, He died for everybody's sins, He, he justified all freely by His grace, His grace is received through faith. If I write you a check for a million dollars and give it to you, I did that by grace, and that million dollar check is yours and it's by grace, you have to do anything for it. I freely did it to you, and I freely gave it to you. But if you don't take it to the bank and cash it or put it in your account, which I hope you don't, because it would bounce. <laughs> but if you don't take it and cash it, it's not going to do you any good. That's the way salvation is. Christ died for the world. He atoned for the world. He justified the world. But if we don't receive it, it's not going to do anybody any good. That's why we must receive what Jesus has done for us. So yes, all sinned. 
Yes, all have been justified in Christ. All have been reconciled in Christ. All sins have been atoned for in Christ. But it says in verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. To be received by faith. That's the work of what Christ did. So that's what Paul says. And we're going to pick up in 2 Corinthians next week. And, but I want, I want us to see that what Paul said, he says, we are ministers of the new covenant. He says, we have a ministry of going and compelling people to come to Christ because of what Christ has done for them. So you see in these first seven chapters, or the first five that we've gone through, Paul is approving his ministry. He's showing that suffering is a sign that he is sacrificing for the people. He's showing that what he's doing, he is doing for the gospel. He's showing that what he is doing is according to the glory of the Spirit of God and the new covenant. And the Corinthian church are the beneficiaries of all that Paul is doing. So we're going to pick up uh, next week in chapter uh, 6 and 7 and uh, talk about the themes that we have in there.